Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. Parking at SFO is easy when you book online. You can choose dates and times in advance and secure the best rates to make your departure stress-free. Learn more at flysfo.com parking. Support for KQED Podcasts comes from Star One Credit Union, now offering real-time money movement with instant pay. Make transfers and payments instantly between financial institutions, online or through Star One's mobile app. Star One Credit Union, in your best interest. From KQED. From KQD in San Francisco, I'm Alexis Madrigal. San Jose is our region's largest city, stretching out from the south side of the bay all the way down to Coyote Valley. It's a place with a larger percentage of immigrants than New York or Los Angeles, home to tens of thousands of people from Mexico, India, Vietnam, China. It's a rich city and a relatively safe city, one that didn't experience the deindustrialization of other parts of the Bay Area. And yet, San Jose, as a crucial part of our region, has its share of affordable housing and homelessness problems. We'll talk with San Jose's newly elected mayor, Matt Mahan, about the city's housing needs, his plans for improving city service, and the future of the tech-infused city. That's all coming up next, after this news. Welcome to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Joining us this morning from KQED Studios in San Jose, we've got Matt Mahan, the mayor of San Jose. He taught school in Alum Rock, founded a couple of civic tech startups, and became a city council person in 2020, before beating Cindy Chavez in a tight race for mayor last November. Welcome to Forum, Mayor Mahan. Good morning. Thanks for having me. And as with our time with Mayor Shang Tao of Oakland, we like these shows to be driven by our listeners who really get a chance to talk directly with the person representing where they live or work. So if you've got a question or a comment for Mayor Mahan of San Jose, give us a call. The number is 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, or KQED Forum. And the email is forum at KQED. Org. Um, Mayor Mahan, let's talk about back when you were just Matt, living in Watsonville. So you're kind of almost a hometown mayor in a sense. What was San Jose to you when you were kind of growing up in the region? Well, I'm still just Matt, but yeah, San Jose was was kind of was always the big city on the other side of the Santa Cruz Mountains that represented opportunity. I grew up in a small farming town, and it was a great place to be a kid. But you know, in terms of educational institutions and economic opportunity, there were certainly some gaps. And I was really lucky to get a work-study scholarship to come to a Catholic school over here called Bellarmine. That's just an incredible school. And I was very lucky to have that opportunity and and made a very long trip by public buses to get here. And uh, it kind of changed my life. What did you think? think of San Jose, San Jose, though, at that age? Like, did you think of it as, you know, the like a tech metropolis? Did you think of it as kind of a suburban place? Like, what, what was your impression of it before you, you know, were living there? Well, from living out in the country, it certainly felt like a metropolis, although now I realize that we, we are a more uh, sprawling and suburban city than I even realized at, at that time. You know, I was coming here in the late 90s, so it was the dot-com boom. I was looking out 
the Highway 17 Express bus window every day watching people zip around in BMWs. I mean, those were heady times, as as I'm sure uh, our audience will remember. So it, it just felt like a city on the rise, like everything was possible. Folks seemed very optimistic and, and excited at, at the time. And of course, uh, we had the, uh, the the bust after that period of time, but I was I was off to college at that yeah. point. So yeah. Uh, yeah. So when you come back, you end up teaching in San Jose through Teach for America, right? I mean, how much time did you end up spending kind of in the classroom and getting to know that community in Elmira? Well, before coming back, I spent a year in South America. I worked on uh, economic development, really irrigation systems down in Bolivia for a year, and then still wasn't quite sure what I was going to do with my career, but I had an opportunity through Teach for America to be a public school teacher out in the east side. My mom had been a teacher for much of her career, and I threw myself into it. I, I fell in love with the, the neighborhood, with my students and their families, and really made a point of keeping my classroom open every day after school. I, I found that a lot of our young people didn't have anywhere else to go. Their parents were often working late or working a couple of jobs. And so I started a chess club and coached the soccer team. And just, uh, it was it was a very immersive experience. I, I learned as much from my students and their families as, as they learned from me. Yeah. But as, you know, the kind of social media world was taking off, you ended up wanting to jump in there and you ended up found, co-founding a couple of different uh, companies in what we now call kind of civic tech uh, what drew you to want to go down that road? Was it just, I mean, you know, this was kind of Facebook launching, you know, you'd gone to Harvard, same dorm and uh, same, same uh, you know, class as Mark Zuckerberg. Was it just kind of the general excitement of that social media world? Actually, I can point to a very specific moment. I had this fateful conversation with Mark Zuckerberg and, you know, he and I knew each other from undergrad at Facebook was still not super well known, and I was planning to go to law school. I mean, my, my goal has always been to be involved in public policy and have an impact on the kinds of opportunities people have in the community. And I sort of thought the path to that would be law school and then maybe getting involved in politics or public policy in some fashion. And I had this dinner with, with Mark, actually, and he he started questioning that and said, you know, do you really want to be a lawyer? What, what about being a lawyer excites you? And I had to admit that I hadn't fully thought it through. And then as he was talking to me about social media and people's identities and relationships moving online and, and the sort of revolution that was going on back at that time, this was 2007, 2008, I got excited and uh, he introduced me to a couple other folks who were working on a startup. And it just, one thing led to another. And I just found myself kind of pulled into this emerging world of online social media. And I joined an early startup that was a a Facebook app that was building tools to help people in their own communities self-organize around causes that they cared about. And I just, I thought it was a really interesting application of community organizing principles, but using cutting edge technology and, and getting the kind of scale and leverage that the internet provides. And it was it was just a really exciting time. I thought I was going to do it for one year and then go to law school. I took the LSAT, applied, got into some schools, then I deferred for a year and then a second year and then a third year. And eventually the dean of uh, the law school where I was going to go called and said, uh, you're not coming, are you? And I said, yeah, probably not. This is pretty this is a pretty exciting time and, and place to be. Yeah. 
So, you know, back in 2017, uh, you had ended up co-founding another startup called Brigade. And you wrote that in a for Recode, a local publication, well, tech publication, new technologies represent our best hope for fixing democracy. Do you agree with yourself from back then, now having been, you know, on the campaign trail and, and in office? I do, but I will say that the experience of campaigning, which I've now done a couple of times, and, and being out physically in neighborhoods, knocking on doors, going to hundreds of small neighborhood meetings was a very important reminder of the the old adage that all politics is local. I, I do think people in their neighborhoods, their daily experience, their relationships with one another is fun is, is just the bedrock of democracy. But I I am still an optimist in terms of the role of technology, and, and this is something I talked about a lot on the campaign trail, I do think we can make government more transparent, more participatory, more efficient and innovative and accountable. I, I really do think there are a number of applications of technology to government that can make it better. But fundamentally, of course, everything comes back to people and their relationships and uh, you know their capacity. So I, I never want to underestimate the importance of, of just us as people and, and our relationships together. But yes, I, I do think there's a lot of opportunities still. We're talking with San Jose's new mayor, Matt Mahan, and we'd love to hear from you. What do you want Mayor Mahan to know about your San Jose or kind of what's your top priority for the city? You can give us a call. Number is 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, we're KQED Forum, and the email is forum at kqed.org. You know, to your point, Matt, you were campaigning on a results-oriented, kind of data-driven approach to governing. And one of the things I heard you say was, you know, we, we have to pick a few key metrics and try and drive change in those things. So what are those areas where you're trying to put focus and what's the metric that you're or set of metrics that you've you know, decided to focus on? Yeah. And if I could just back up for one second, when I was out knocking on doors and I personally knocked on over 10,000 doors, did literally a a few hundred neighborhood-based events with residents. One of the undercurrents that I picked up on was really significant skepticism, even distrust in government, which frankly kind of surprised me. I mean, we live in an area that um, is very where we have a lot of resources and 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 um, we've 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 had a lot of good fortune in our region and yet frustration with basic service delivery was incredibly high. People told me stories of calling nine one one and being put on hold or having a pothole that they've driven over for ten years and it and you know initially that was not what I expected we'd be talking about but there there was a real deep seated frustration and very broad based every neighborhood I was in. And I think it's just sort of the nature of large organizations, government in particular, to become more complex over time, to have more and more layers, to try to take on more and more issues. And when you step back and just you know, approach it from the perspective of the average resident going about their daily lives, a lot of gaps emerge and you realize, wow, we are struggling to deliver on the basics. And so what I would, you asked about priorities what I've heard over and over again from residents, and I think the polling backs this up, but I heard it at the doors repeatedly, are concerns around public safety, around blight and beautification, 
uh, homelessness, of course, is very high on the list, and lack of affordable housing, cost of living, but really affordable housing specifically. So those four issues really emerged. And part of the argument I made in the campaign is that given the incredible need and the frustration that's out there, we need to zero in on these top few priorities and start actually setting goals very explicitly on the city website. I mean, we pass a multi-billion dollar budget, and yet you can't go to our website and see in a very clear way what our top three to five goals are, how we measure success, how we're progressing, what our big bets or strategies are. And I want to bring that level of transparency to local government. I haven't seen a local government do that particularly well. Of course, that's kind of the norm in any any startup or, or tech-enabled business where you have dashboards up on the wall and everybody in the organization knows, okay, what are we all aiming toward here? How do we measure success? Or, or what are we learning? Are we progressing or not? And why or why not? I just haven't seen that same level of focus and rigor inside City Hall. And that, that has kind of become my mission. So when we come back from the break, we're going to try and go through some of those. Like what numbers... Um, yeah. are, are going to be on the wall uh, around what I heard was blight, uh, homelessness, lack of affordable housing, and uh, number one, we had uh, public safety. Um, some uh, comments are already starting to call, come in and callers are starting to call. Uh, Noel tweets, I want affordable housing in all neighborhoods. We are a big city and need to act like it. No more nimbyism. Too many young people have to move to Texas or Colorado in order to buy a house. Our service workers have to become super commuters, and their cars are clogging the roads and generating pollution. We're talking with San Jose's mayor, new mayor, Matt Mahan. What do you want the mayor to know about your San Jose? What's your top priority for the city? Phone lines are starting to fill up, so you can try Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, or KQED Forum, or the number is 866-733-6786. The email is forum at kqed.org. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Stay tuned with more right after the break. This is Barbara Leslie, president of the Oakland Port Commission. Oakland International Airport, OAK, is proud to bring you this podcast of KQED's Forum. When you're choosing your next adventure, the smart and convenient choice is to fly the East Bay Way from OAK to destinations across the USA and Mexico. And when you return home, tune in to KQED, always bringing us remarkable stories about who we are and where we live. Enjoy today's episode of Forum. I'm what you might call very good at hide-and-seek. And since we got Xfinity, we have Wi-Fi all over the house, even in my super-secret hiding spots. So I can kill time in here by streaming my favorite... Ha! Found ya. How? You left to find my tablet on. Get wall-to-wall Wi-Fi on the Xfinity 10G network. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. We're talking with San Jose's new mayor, Matt Mahan. Um, mayor Mahan, I know that one of your first initiatives is to hire more police officers. And I'm also sure that you've read about, interacted with, seen these kind of police reform, accountability and abolition efforts all around the Bay Area during your years here. What's something that you've learned from that activism that you'd like to put into place in the city? 
Yeah, and, and let me just back up and give context. We were just talking about metrics and how do we measure success. And I, I think one of the most obvious success measures for public safety is response times. When somebody calls 911 and is in a moment of need, do they get a response and how long does it take? And we are way below our targets. I'm sorry, way above our targets in the sense that it's taking significantly longer for our emergency responders to get to people when they need help. And so if you look at response times as an example of a key outcome that, mm-hmm. that would help us measure success, I, I think we've got to acknowledge that our challenge in San Jose is extremely low staffing levels. In fact, the lowest staffing levels of any city in the country. San Francisco, by comparison, has significantly fewer people, about 150,000 fewer people, and has more than twice as many police officers. Mm-hmm. So we are way off. And there's a long history there, including our unfunded pension liabilities and and our redevelopment debt and a number number of other issues related to our budget that I won't get into. But um, so that's why, that's just the context on why I think when it comes to public safety, staffing actually is a really significant solution for, for our city and needs to be a priority. That being said, I'm, I've been very supportive of the efforts that many groups in the city have been making to ensure that we have increased transparency and accountability. I've been supportive of our independent police auditor. We're having a conversation right now about which kinds of complaints ought to be automatically sent over to the independent police auditor and not solely reviewed within the department. And I'm, mm-hmm. I'm very supportive of independent audits. I think accountability is good for everyone, from those of us who are elected officials to our police department to, to everybody else. So I, I think that kind of independent review and audit function is something the community feels strongly about, and I'm, I'm in lockstep on that. Do you think that police unions have too much power, just about the right amount, not enough? Because that's been one of the key blocks for that kind of independent check outside of police departments. Yeah, I mean, I think it depends on... On the issue, I, I think it's uh, certainly the case that having our employees have a voice and be organized and be able to argue for the kinds of working conditions that they need. I mean, I think broadly speaking, there's there's a very important role that the police union, like any other union, plays. On the other hand, in local politics, when you have highly organized groups that have access to a lot of funding, and that can be local public sector unions. It can also be a local chamber of commerce, to be very clear. I do think it distorts our politics. It, it, it tilts the landscape toward the groups that are highly organized and have a lot of money. And uh, that's a concern I have. When I jumped into the race, I was 25 points down, tied for last place, and very explicitly ran an outsider strategy of of going out and just knocking on thousands and thousands of doors and hosting lots of community meetings because I was pretty sure that I wasn't going to have the endorsements of the of the big interest groups or the or the money and it turned out I was outspent by a couple million dollars and did not have very many endorsements but it is still possible to go uh, to go kind of straight to the people if you will and make the case for change and it it worked in the election but yeah I, I mean it's it's a fair question I, I think it's it, it's not just true of a particular union. I think it's true of any organi- highly organized interest. Let's uh, start getting to some callers here. We've got a full uh, slate for you here, Mary Mahan. Uh, starting with uh, Audrey in San Jose. Welcome. Hi, um, Mayor Mann. I am so excited to have you. I'm a big supporter from day one. Um, I'm really, really excited. I currently live in District 6 in San Jose, 
Um, love it. I grew up in East San Jose, uh, left to go to college, came back. I'm now the founder of a startup company and um, was really excited to buy a house in the Rose Garden. However, over the past like five years, we have watched it go into a state of decay. We have boarded up windows. We have businesses that are leaving. Um, we have mentally ill people and drug addicts um, you know, terrorizing our stores. It's, um, it's just become a free-for-all. And, and given the state of our current city council um, and their just lack of motivation to fix any of these issues, how do you see this happening going forward? I mean, the state of I mean, the state of decay that we're in, just blight, homelessness. Um, you know, is there is there a plan to to get them to to motivate them to to actually do their jobs? Uh, Audrey, appreciate your perspective. Go ahead, Mayor Mahan. Thanks so much, Audrey. Really appreciate your comments and congratulations on your on your startup. Uh, yes, I, what you're saying, I've been hearing over and over again from thousands of residents, and I, I think it really, to me, it's about getting back to basics and having a new level of transparency around how we're performing. This is this is something I've harped on because I think we need to all get on the same page. It's very easy for us as elected officials to all have our own pet priorities and our own opinions and perspectives, but really, this this should not be something that is just left to our opinions. We should be objectively measuring how quickly we process permits for those small businesses that we want to see fill those storefronts on the Alameda, again, as an example in, in your neighborhood. Uh, our, our police response time, something we talked about. You mentioned the issue of behavioral health issues, which really falls on the county, but is something that we need to partner with the county on. We see far too many people falling through the cracks where someone is arrested or just is in crisis and needs to be taken to the local hospital and for a lack of sufficiently robust systems just ends up right back out there on the streets a day later, which is totally unacceptable and and frankly inhumane. So there's, there's a lot to do, but I think that the way that we get our city council and our county rowing in the same direction is to go back to those objective measures of success. What are the crime rates? What are the vacancy rates in our small business corridors. And really, if we're more transparent, I think you all as voters can hold us accountable for the outcomes. We should each be responsible as your representatives for bringing forward our hypotheses for how to solve problems. We should be very explicit about those hypotheses, those strategies. And you should be able to measure us, uh, our effectiveness uh, based on real data. Did we move the needle or not? So I have set up Let me just finish on this one point. Sorry. I've set up five transition committees with resident participation and a number of different stakeholders that will be coming back with recommendations on issues like safety and economic vitality in just the next couple of weeks. You've actually staked out quite a distinctive position, though, on homelessness, I think. Um, You know, like when we talk about it a lot in other cities, there's a lot of talk about building uh, permanent supportive housing. And you've really focused on saying we need fast interim housing. And it seems to me like you're saying we need to just get people off the street, like that that is kind of the singular focus versus a a focus on the sort of broader ecosystem of homelessness, I would say. Yeah, and there's no doubt that there's a broader ecosystem there. And we can go in depth on affordable housing and our lack of housing supply and the many barriers to building housing to keep up with growing demand. And that's a whole broader issue. I I guess my perspective is that we have a humanitarian crisis that is very 
clear cut. I mean, we have thousands of people living outside. No one should be living outside in one of the wealthiest, most innovative places on earth. And I want us to chart the fastest course to getting to zero people living outside. Now, we should do that with guardrails. Obviously, what we do needs to be humane. But we sort of have these two extremes. We have warehousing people in unsafe congregate shelter at one extreme, and then we have the other end, which is building brand new permanent supportive housing units that are coming in at a million dollars a door and taking over five years to build. And what I'm arguing for is is taking what we can from both of those approaches. One is efficient and scalable, but there are real concerns around people's personal safety and, and their and, and their, their well-being. And on the other hand, uh, what we've learned from Housing First is that giving someone a safe individual space that is stable is critical for dealing with other issues like behavioral health issues. So how do we blend these two and find a middle path that takes the best of the Housing First approach but doesn't cost a million dollars a door and take five years to build? And what we found is that using prefabricated modular units, we can give people what is almost like a little, very basic studio apartment, 400 square feet, a bed, a bathroom, a, a shower, uh, all in one little self-contained space. And at least we get people inside. And once someone's inside, stably housed, and there's on-site services, then we can start to address anything from addiction to job training to job placement. Yeah. And so I'm a big advocate for us just getting people into safe individual shelter as quickly yeah. and cost-effectively as possible. So because I know you want to be held to metrics, yeah. uh, we want to get to zero people living outside. That's your that's that's the North Star metric. That's the North Star. And and what's the sort of level of improvement that you think you can drive? Like what what percentage decrease in people living outside do you think you can? Yeah. So I'm working through that with city staff right now. We have this transition committee that's exploring that very that very topic. So I don't have the uh, the data on exactly how much we can move that, but I want to see it be meaningful. And I, I, you know, that could be, say, a 20% reduction as an example of the number of people living outside in the next couple of years. I mean, that's the kind of, I want us to bring forward solutions. And, and I don't think I have all the answers. I'm talking about my mm-hmm. colleagues on the council, city staff, community stakeholders that have the ability to move the needle at that mm-hmm. scale. And I think that if we're not moving the needle at, at that kind of magnitude, then we need to actually lower the bar. My, my theory is that we've let the perfect be the enemy of the good. At a million dollars a door in five years to build, it's not right. scalable. So we need to start coming down the sort of cost curve and the, the complexity curve toward more basic things. We're buying motels and converting them. We're building prefab modular units. Maybe we even need to look at testing a a sanctioned encampment of some kind. I want to see us bring down the barriers to getting people into safe, managed environments. And I don't think that that is the, the sort of end state that we want to be in. Of course, we want everybody to be stably housed in a, in a proper, long-term, permanent home. But when the alternative is today having thousands of people living in tents along our creeks, I just think we need to be significantly more pragmatic. Yeah. Yep. Um, let's bring in Gail. Stay on this topic. Gail in San Jose. Welcome. Hi, Mayor Matt. This is Gail Osmer. How are you? Hi, Gail. 
How are you? Hey, I just, I'm good. I want to, first of all, come and thank you so much for what you did for Unhoused declaring an emergency. Um, and that was the best thing that I've heard in over eight years because Ricardo never did that. I want to thank you. That was wonderful. And when I was walking up and down the creeks for a few days, you know, people were happy to know that they can go somewhere. They moved up and they were happy. One thing you talked about is sanctioned encampments. I've been a big advocate for that. I think it can be done. I think a lot of the camps that I go to right now are sanctioned, even though they're not legally sanctioned, Hmm. because they're a family. The unhoused want to live together because they've been together for a long time, and it's all family. And I think we should look into sanctioned encampments. And I'd also like to suggest navigation centers, like Mayor Bree did in San Francisco. I've been also advocating for that. I think it's a very important dynamic for the unhoused. So that's something um, mm-hmm. maybe you can look into. But yeah. I think so far things are, with this emergency declaration, um, it's been great. And I want to thank you for that very much. So that's Gail, all I thank have you to so say. much. No, that's wonderful. Uh, thank you for uh, for for bringing that up. I, let's let's take this in kind of two pieces, uh, Mayor Mahan. One is for people who uh, were not paying attention to this emergency declaration that you made um, as the storms were kind of hitting at the beginning of the year. Um, talk to us about what that meant, and then I want to talk a little bit more about n- navigation centers and, and community opposition. Yeah, absolutely. And and thanks for your comments, Gail, and for your engagement uh, on the issue. I know you've been a long time advocate. And so the, the context on the evacuation order, the emergency proclamation, is that when we had the series of atmospheric rivers early in the year last month, we were extremely worried that the creeks would, we've, as I mentioned before, hundreds probably couple thousand people living along our waterways and just worried uh, for their safety as waters were rising rapidly. So we, as a city, issued an emergency proclamation and went out physically. I was out there along with Gail and many members of the city staff. We were out there uh, letting people know that we needed them to to get out of the creeks and that they were in in danger. We opened up evacuation centers in our community centers. The American Red Cross, for example, helped staff a couple of those. We had the capacity to provide indoor shelter with cots and food and and you know just basic services for anyone who wanted to come inside. And we scaled that up to a few hundred people and and could have gone even higher if there was more demand. But I think most people just moved a few hundred feet back from the waterways. So that was what we did there. What was innovative, and I think Gail's referring to that I'm really proud of, is when the emergency proclamation and when the emergency had passed and we were winding down those evacuation centers, rather than just send people right back out to the creeks, we expanded capacity for short-term stays in our EIH sites, our emergency interim housing sites, literally tents on pallets, but within a protected area with on-site services and security and and counseling. And as rooms become available, those folks will be first in line. And so we had something on the order of 130 people take us up on that opportunity, which that's another 130 people who didn't go right back to living in the creeks. Mm -hmm. So that was a that's the kind of thing I'm talking about is just lower barrier, faster approaches to getting people into safe, stable environments. 
You know, one of the things we're hearing is that there's at least some buzz at City Hall that you might be eyeing a, a, long, a different kind of state of emergency declaration like the one that Karen Bass uh, made in Los Angeles that might help you deal with, um, you know, new resources or shaking, doing things differently, shaking things up around homelessness in San Jose. Is that something that, uh, that you're looking at? It is something we're looking at, and I've asked the city attorney to give us options and and analyze what new powers might be available if we were to go that route. I had the opportunity to sit down with Mayor Bass at the U.S. Conference of Mayors just a few weeks ago. And what she mentioned, which is exactly what I suspected, is that the value of that emergency proclamation was actually less, had less to do with the explicit or formal powers that she gained, but more to do with focusing everyone on the same problem and pulling in folks from other levels of government and having that regular check-in where all of the leaders across all of the departments and partners in, at the county and the housing authority are all coming together and meeting on a regular basis and actually treating it like an emergency. You know, we call homelessness a crisis especially during campaigns, it seems. But then once we get into office, it's sort of status quo and we continue pursuing approaches that are or we're just plodding along. It's incredibly slow and expensive. And if we were to actually set up an emergency operations center, treat it like an emergency, have a daily briefing, actually ask ourselves every day, how much did we move the needle today? How many people did we get inside? How many encampments were we able to um, to relocate into safe, stable housing with on-site services, even if that is really basic shelter, frankly, I think we'd be making progress faster. And so that's kind of the vision for it. Obviously, there are a lot of considerations there. And and I never, as we established at the beginning of the program, I never made it to law school. So I've got to you know, <laughs> lean on some folks who are more knowledgeable than I am. But it is certainly something we're looking at. Uh, we are talking with San Jose's new mayor, Matt Mahan. Taking your calls and your comments, you can call us at 866-733-6786. Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, we're KQED Forum, and the email is forum at kqed.org. Sean writes in to say San Jose and Silicon Valley in general lacks a central visual element. Some piece of art or architecture that, when seen, is immediately identified with the city. I know that's not housing or crime, but having a visual persona gives a sense of place. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Stay tuned for more right after the break. This is Barbara Leslie, president of the Oakland Port Commission. Oakland International Airport, OAK, is proud to bring you this podcast of KQED's Forum. When you're choosing your next adventure, the smart and convenient choice is to fly the East Bay Way from OAK to destinations across the USA and Mexico. And when you return home, tune in to KQED, always bringing us remarkable stories about who we are and where we live. Enjoy today's episode of Forum. I'm what you might call... Very good at hide-and-seek. And since we got Xfinity, we have Wi-Fi all over the house. Even in my super-secret hiding spots. So I can kill time in here by streaming my favorite... Ha! Found ya. How? You left to find my tablet on. Get wall-to-wall Wi-Fi on the Xfinity 10G network. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. 
Welcome back to Forum. We're talking with San Jose's new mayor, Matt Mahan, about uh, going back to basics with city government. Um, and let's bring in John in San Jose, who wants to talk about uh, getting stuff done. Welcome, John. Hi, thanks. Good morning. Good morning. Um, I, yeah, my question is that uh, San Jose, being the 10th largest city in the country, uh, but is, is the most thinly staffed of all of them, at least according to Mayor Licardo's budget message from last year, uh, in addition to being the, the most thinly staffed big city in the country, San Jose also currently has almost uh, almost a thousand job vacancies uh, for for city employees. So, how are you going to achieve the goals that you're talking about without the city staff to actually carry out the work? And and how are you going to measure that? What are you going to do to attract people to come work for the city and be public servants uh, when it uh, when you're competing with Silicon Valley employers uh, and so many other challenges? Great questions. These are the ones that keep me up at night. <laughs> Thanks, John. Uh, yeah, we absolutely need to hire faster and be better at retaining people. We are doing a full analysis of all of those vacancies, as John just referenced. Our vacancies at the city are over 13%. A healthy level of vacancy would be probably closer to maybe 6 to 8%, so about about half that. You're going to always have vacancies and turnover in any, any large organization, of course. But um, it's very concerning. I've asked our city manager to go back with department heads and look at those vacancies and help provide the council with some analysis of why and what we need to do. I suspect in, in some roles we need to just pay better, frankly. There may be other roles where vacancies have been on the books for years and the department has figured out how to go about its work without filling that role and it's become an afterthought, in which case we should reallocate those funds and make sure we're using them as effectively as possible. We have departments running up really high overtime bills and burning out workers when we'd be much better served if we were appropriately staffed. So we're, we are looking at that. I think we need to bring in outside recruitment. We need to really be much more aggressive about going out to all of our college campuses. I mean, there's good work being done, but priority number one needs to be hiring because, to John's point, if we don't have a talented team in place. And if we're not retaining our talent, we're not going to be able to provide those services. But to the broader issue, you know, a lot of people don't realize that San Jose is a big city with a very small budget on a per capita basis because we were built as a residential city. We, we were sort of built as this bedroom community for the job centers on the peninsula. And from a tax base perspective, that means we have significantly less revenue per capita, which is why, while I'm very focused on homelessness, crime, and blight, in the long run, I think what will unlock the most impact for our city is also having a strong economic development strategy and particularly getting employers to move into and grow in our downtown. And so as we secure funding for BART, we just secured another $375 million from the state. As we invest in transit infrastructure downtown and speed up permitting, I, I really have a vision for and a desire to see downtown become the urban center or, or true capital of Silicon Valley. And I think we're poised to do that, but it's going gonna, it's gonna to take a lot of work and it is going to take time. Uh, listener Jennifer writes in to say, you know, the mayor ran as an outsider in the campaign, and yet his staff largely reflects that of Mayor Licardo, including chief of staff Jim Reed. How does he plan to lead change while keeping the old guard? Yeah, it's a. I appreciate the question. I mean, to be clear, 
I think I only kept on about a third of Mayor Licardo's team, but there is a lot of value in having folks who have done the job and understand how City Hall works and can help us hit the ground running. I have just a two-year term, as I think folks may know. We are realigning our mayoral election around the presidential cycle. So I've got two years and really less than that. I'm on the ballot again in about a year. So we've got to, we want to hit the ground running. I think to try to bring in an entirely new team would have actually just slowed us down and set us back. A lot of really talented and experienced people on his team. Um, and I, you know, I didn't run against Mayor Licardo. I ran against a, a larger system that I felt had become complacent. And the antidote to that is not to just swap out all the people in City Hall. It's to actually focus on fewer things. We have really talented staff at City Hall. I think the failure mode has been that we have not sufficiently prioritized. Mm-hmm. We, on the council, there are 11 of us, 10, 10 council members representing our 10 districts, and then the mayor. And we have just had a history of writing lots of memos, sending lots of direction to staff, sending them off in, in a thousand different directions, trying to be everything to everyone. And if I can add one thing to the way that we operate at City Hall, it's to actually remove things. It's to, it's to focus on the basics again. It's to pick three to five things that matter, set objectives, me- measures of success, and be really radically transparent about where your tax dollars are going and be honest when they aren't working. One of the other things, and I'll just end on this, but one of the biggest lessons I learned working in tech was this concept of failing fast. And it's not that we want to fail, but the reality is most of the things that we try, most of our hypotheses end up not panning out as expected. And so I think it's better to just be really transparent and explicit about what we're doing to try to create outcomes, better outcomes in a given issue like homelessness or crime and measure. And if it's not working, just admit it and say, okay, well, we increased staffing by 20% and it didn't move the needle. Maybe there's something else going on here. Maybe it just has to do with our policies or the technologies we're using, or we just invest another million dollars in in improving technology, but it didn't actually speed up permitting. Maybe there's a deeper issue here. So I think we, we need to improve our learning cycles and really move faster and iterate through our, our solutions faster. Uh, Patricia writes in to say, I was excited to meet the mayor this Saturday. He came to our neighborhood cleanup in the Seven Trees area. I hope he won't forget what he saw and some things we told him about. The homelessness along our streets, the lack of trees we roast to death during heat waves, the uncoordinated public transportation so that Caltrain and VTA just don't know what the other is doing, the lack of sidewalks and lights when the Caltrain station, the lack of any walkable amenities, the praying you have to do when you hop on your bike because there's no bike lanes and lots of debris on the road. Should I go on? The South Side has a ton of potential. Please don't forget us. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I really enjoyed the cleanup. Thanks for being out there. We had 70 people come out for our first inauguration days, we're calling them, where we've set up these hands-on cleanup opportunities and beautification projects across the city. We kicked off in Seven Trees. And I remember the conversation with, uh, with, with the person who, who just wrote in. Patricia, yeah. Yeah, was it Tricia? Yes. Yeah, great. Well, thanks, Tricia. And, and one thing, Tricia, if we, I, I know I didn't get your contact info, but I'll offer this to all of our listeners. If you would email me at mayor at sanjoseca.gov with where you see those specific opportunities to improve quality of life in your neighborhood, that to me is really valuable. And we have a neighborhood outreach team that's mostly focused on blight and beautification to start. 
But I know you and I talked about another little improvement that frankly wouldn't cost that much, which is just making sure that there's a safer pathway to the Caltrain station. And that there, you, you were telling me how there's no sidewalk, no bike lane. There just isn't a safe way to get from one street across a larger street to the Caltrain station. And that's something we should go look at. And, you know, it's possible that our Department of Transportation just isn't aware of that intersection and the barrier that you and your neighborhood are, are facing right. there. That's so, back to basics right there. That <laughs> is, sure. absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Um, let's bring in uh, Masanti. Uh, oh, sorry, Masanti, let me make sure you get... There we go. Masanti in San Jose, uh-huh. welcome. Uh, thank you. Thank you, uh, Mayor Mahan, and congratulations on your win. I have been uh, following your campaign since the very early days, and I liked what I heard. I live in the Murdoch neighborhood of San Jose, and I attended your campaign event there. Uh, my call today specifically is about a blight situation that's happening in, in my neighborhood, in my area. So this person started a, uh, an automobile refurbishing business right in the neighborhood using the city streets. Uh, this is right next to Lindbrook High School, causing traffic havoc. These are not even small one or two cars that we are talking. He brings these huge delivery trucks and others that are completely beaten up. So he brings them to the neighborhood. He takes up any parking space that is available in front of houses, repairs them right away, spreads the pots all on the street, uh, keeps a big tank of fuel right there, uh, gives us all anxiety. Uh, the neighborhood is very quickly turning into a blight. And I hear you talk frequently about blight, and I'm really, really hoping that we have, you know, we have talked to uh, the city officials so many times, opened up so many tickets with 311, every time it's just closed for no reason. And um, I'm hoping our last resort you is you, Mr. Mahan, and, and I, we all really, all of our neighborhood uh, families are hoping you will not let our uh, beautiful neighborhood run into a blight. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah, Masanti, thank you. Thank you so much for calling in. And I, when I talk about back to basics, these are the kinds of issues that matter to our residents. It's these daily quality of life and safety issues that come up over and over again. And I'm very focused on resolving those. I care about every last pothole in this city. So please, you mentioned that you reported this to 311. If you can just email me directly at mayor at sanjoseca.gov, our team will absolutely follow up on it. What you're referencing is is actually related to something I talked about in my inaugural address last week, which was our code enforcement department. And this gets back to a point that John brought up earlier around vacancies. Our code enforcement department has a 22% vacancy rate right now, has a backlog of nearly 4,000 code complaint cases that are unresolved. And so on. The, we'll do a parallel path here of, of hiring and improving retention and actually holding ourselves accountable for fully staffing that department so they can do their jobs. But I also want to dig into your example, and I, we do this on a regular basis, drill down into it with city staff and say, why are we closing this 311 ticket? Did we actually do the investigation? What did we find? Did we close the loop with the resident? It sounds like, uh, Masanti, you didn't actually get a satisfactory answer as to why your 311 report was closed without a, a, mm-hmm. a satisfactory resolution. And we need to do a better job of closing the loop and communicating with our residents. I, I hear about this frequently with this frustration of reporting code violations, abandoned vehicles, and, and not knowing mm-hmm. why the ticket was closed when it's still there. Right. Well, and this is really interesting. Just going to your sense of data-driven uh, governance, 
you know, looking at the resident satisfaction with the 311 app services in San Jose, you know, over this is, I guess, data from January 2019 to June 2022, most of the satisfaction ratings are going up except for abandoned vehicle, which is just yeah. sort of plummeted. So obviously yeah. you've seen that data, too. Does that mean that that's going to be a major focus for you is dealing with these abandoned vehicle tickets and trying to figure out sort of why that satisfaction has plummeted? Absolutely. And and just to back up, I chaired our Smart Cities Committee for the past two years, and we made 311 a priority. And the reason that your customer satisfaction ratings are going up is that we took a data-driven approach. We took each of the services that we offer. You can use San Jose's 311 app to report a streetlight outage, a pothole, graffiti, illegal dumping, to request a service like free junk pickup at your curbside, and on and on. And the satisfaction ratings a couple of years ago were quite low. The vast majority of residents were dissatisfied with the quality of the services we were providing through 311. We took each of those and isolated them and actually started measuring in a very rigorous way how many requests do we get? How many days does it take us to respond? How often do we actually fulfill the request? What is the uh, the, the sort of anecdotal uh, or uh, you, you know the feedback from the residents on why they are rating this positively or negatively, and as we dove down into the data, it actually forced us to go back to the fulfillment side of things, the back end within the departments, and fine tune how we were delivering these services. And so we've seen improvements across the board, except Alexis, what you just referenced, which is abandoned vehicles. And I think that what's going on here is really a mismatch of expectations. Residents are aware of the fact that in city code, you are not allowed to keep a vehicle on a city street in the exact same location for more than 72 hours. You're supposed to be moving your vehicles. That doesn't happen, and the city has been so understaffed that we have not been enforcing that hardly at all. And so people are reporting abandoned vehicles that are not, in fact, abandoned. They are owned by someone in the neighborhood, but they may have been sitting there for three months. Maybe it's an extra vehicle or it's a, it's a, it's a loaner car. I don't know what it is, but it's been just sitting there and hasn't moved for months, and people get frustrated and think it's abandoned. So we are going through a process right now of figuring out how we better evaluate these vehicles. Certainly, when they need to be towed, then we ought to tow them. And we need to better communicate with residents about our evaluation of that of that complaint and why it was closed or, or wasn't, what we did and why. And we, we need to just be clearer with people. Uh, another listener writes in to say, at one point during your campaign, I scanned your social media and only found one post dedicated to traffic safety. Last year, San Jose set a grim modern day record of 65 traffic deaths. That's almost double the homicide count of 35 and yet rarely gets mentioned when talking about, quote, public safety. The city declared Vision Zero in 2015, and the data is clear that we're going backwards. What's your plan to bring this down immediately? Yeah, it's a great question. Our roadways have become incredibly dangerous and sadly seem to be even more dangerous since uh, since the pandemic. I don't quite know why that is. I suspect part of what's going on out there is distracted driving with people increasingly on their on their phones while they're driving around, but um, I don't have the hard data to know to know for certain. One of the things we have done, and I've been a real advocate for, actually, we set up a community working group down in my district when I was a council member focused on traffic safety, is improve enforcement. We have to change social norms. I think you know human behavior is it drives these sorts of outcomes, and 
you know, to the extent that the the, the pedestrian deaths and, and injuries we've seen is driven by distracted driving, I, I would say that we have not helped that situation by having such a thinly staffed police department. Our traffic enforcement unit went from 50 officers before the Great Recession down to a low of, of about 10, and we have been slowly rebuilding, getting officers cross-trained and using the radar gun and, and enabling them to pick up overtime shifts to do traffic enforcement. So I think fundamentally staffing and enforcement is a big part of it. We are making a number of investments in the built environment to calm traffic in dangerous intersections. And then the final piece that I'm very interested in is use of technology. We've begun to use automatic license plate readers for enforcement, but there are also other technologies that do not need to convey any information about a person's identity and who they are. I think we can address any privacy concerns that may be out there, but just look at near-miss data and understand patterns in traffic flow and where we're seeing near-misses and then use that to either improve enforcement or make changes to the built environment. So I think there's a lot we can do there. Uh, but fundamentally, we, it's also, we need to do a big public information campaign because a lot of this is being driven by individual behavior and, and frankly, I think, distracted driving. Yeah. Uh, Vivian writes in to say, uh, people and pets are in crisis. Uh, would you be able to discuss your plans regarding the ongoing issues at SJACS? The shelter's in crisis, completely overwhelmed with animals to the point they're having to turn away found pets. The shelter needs immediate support. It intakes between fifteen to 18,000 cats and dogs per year. We need to recruit a shelter leadership team that has deep experience in large municipal shelter management. Our city's unhoused population includes people and pets and is part of the overall crisis facing our community. We probably don't have time for you to actually uh, address that. We're coming down to our last minute. But in exchange, can you tell people you've been giving out this email address and maybe uh, – Vivian, I believe it was, could it, could email you there where people can get in touch if the 311 app isn't working or if they have this kind of specific uh, request. Absolutely. Thanks, Vivian. Appreciate the, the question. Would love to follow up with you offline. And that email again is mayor at sanjoseca.gov. We want to hear from everyone about the things going on in their neighborhoods, the issues on their on their minds, and we will do our very best to be responsive yeah. and accountable for driving better outcomes for our community. Thanks again, Alexis. Be on the lookout for Carol from San Jose, who has a sidewalk and tree issue as well. Thanks, Carol. Apologize we couldn't get you on the phones. We have been talking with San Jose's new mayor, Matt Mahan, about his back-to-basics approach. Thanks again, uh, Mayor Mahan. This is Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Stay tuned for another hour of Forum Ahead with Mina Kim. Funds for the production of KQED's Forum are provided by the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation, the Generosity Foundation, the Germanicos Foundation, and the Heising Simons Foundation. This is Barbara Leslie, President of the Oakland Port Commission. Oakland International Airport, OAK, is proud to bring you this podcast of KQED's Forum. When you're choosing your next adventure, the smart and convenient choice is to fly the East Bay Way, from OAK to destinations across the USA and Mexico. And when you return home, tune in to KQED, always bringing us remarkable stories about who we are and where we live. Enjoy today's episode of Forum. I'm what you might call very good at hide-and-seek. And since we got Xfinity... 
We have Wi-Fi all over the house, even in my super secret hiding spots. So I can kill time in here by streaming my favorite- Ha! Found ya. How? You left to find my tablet on. Get wall-to-wall Wi-Fi on the Xfinity 10G network. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. A young correctional officer. He said it was the most dangerous prison in California. Forced to make a choice. Fulfill his oath or back his fellow officers. Recognize the badge of my office. I'm Suki Lewis. From KQED Podcasts comes On Our Watch Season 2, New Folsom. A story about who gets hurt when the system that promises to keep us safe is bent on protecting itself. Find it wherever you listen to podcasts.